everybody doing? Wonderful. I've heard of Back Row Baptist, but we don't even have rows, and everybody has gotten just as realistically, physically far away. That's when you know how popular you are, when everybody's clamoring to get closer to the toilet than to you. That's, that's something. All right. Um, it's good to, good to see everybody tonight. We're going to uh, continue on with our study of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you got your Bible, you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Um, and while you're doing that, we're going to go ahead and open us up in prayer. And, uh, oh, let's see. Actually, let's see here. Brother Kyle, will you open us up in prayer? say on the front end that there have been times that, that I looked at a text that I was preparing to preach through and I, I quickly realized that I was just too small or too immature or really too ignorant to, to do it justice. But Matthew chapter 6 verse 11 was never one of those verses. Thank you, Brother Tony, for coming and getting in the, in the front square. Uh, I have to be honest when I tell you that as I looked ahead through the, the Lord's Prayer and I prepared for this series, I sort of, you know, kind of mentally just skipped over this verse uh, because I, I thought I grasped it well already. And it seemed simple and it seemed unchallenging. And I was even tempted to really kind of find a way just to wedge it in to a, uh, to a sermon uh, about really some other points in this prayer that just seemed more intriguing and, and only mentioning it in, in, or mention it in passing because um, I thought maybe everybody would be bored with a sermon about just this verse because I thought everybody else must totally grasp it completely. Um, but I must say that as I prayed about and prepared for this sermon, God really just kind of convicted me of many of the things that we're going to say here, and I'm, I'm being totally honest with you. I, I stand before you ready to preach this text, but I want you to know that I felt about that big typing this sermon out, and I don't feel big enough to preach it. I don't think that I do everything that we're going to talk about tonight yet, but uh, by the grace of God, thankfully, I, I believe I'm beginning to in a better way, and I hope you will as well. And uh, I just want to say I think that I probably have more room to grow in what we're going to talk about tonight than probably anybody else here. But um, I believe God will speak to all of us through this. So as we continue our study, we find ourselves in kind of sort of a bend of the river of the model prayer. And it's here that Jesus makes a distinctive shift in his, his verbiage. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But 
after instructing us to pray to our Father who's above all things, and after instructing us to submit to and seek after His will above all else, Jesus tells us to pray in verse 11, saying, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, why does He tell us to pray for that? That's a question we need to ask, Ms. Glenda. Why does he tell us to pray for daily bread? And to answer that question, uh, Jane, we need to understand what he's really telling us to pray for when he says pray for daily bread. So the question we really have to answer is what is daily bread? Or what is Jesus' focus when he tells us to pray for daily bread? Now, first we need to realize that bread is the iconic staple food for most cultures around the world. And I think most of us probably grasp that, at least intellectually. In some cultures, it may be rice. Emily, if you go to most places in Asia, it's rice, isn't it? Yeah, because their, their climate just lends itself to it. Space lends itself to it. Um, but when Matthew writes of praying for bread, his audience in the first century A.D. in Israel would have grasped that this was a reference to the basic physical sustenance that they needed. And secondly, for most of the world throughout the history of mankind, food isn't something that has been enjoyed in an overabundance like we tend to enjoy it in our culture. Now, tomorrow is what? Memorial Day. I asked you the question because I always get Memorial Day and Labor Day mixed up and we're live streaming and everybody doesn't know I'm the village idiot out in live stream places. So, you know, I wanted you to answer for me. It's Memorial Day. Most of us are going to have some kind of barbecue or cookout or something like that. And some of us are going to have to repent afterwards because we are going to transgress and commit massive, amount, massive uh, infractions of gluttony or whatever. Every... Uh, New Year's resolution that we ever made back in January, if we haven't shattered them yet, we're going to. The coronavirus has driven it to us, you know, driven us to it. Use whatever excuse you want. But we are a people that enjoy massive amounts of food whenever we want it, right? Um, here in America, even during this current pandemic that we're going through, we can, in most places in the country, get in our car and drive through a drive through somewhere and buy as much cheap food as we want and eat until we just pop. We can do that. We can go to a grocery store or we can even order from the grocery store and we don't even have to go in anymore. We park in a spot and they bring out wagon loads of whatever kind of food we want. You want healthy food? They got it. You want processed food? They got it. Anywhere in between. And they bring it out to us. We have these storehouses called uh, grocery stores where there's just an abundance of food that is ready to be consumed, but that's not the normal human experience throughout history. And we have to really grasp that or else we're going to totally miss what Matthew's really writing about on the front end of this. You have to, um, in most cultures throughout history and even most places in the world still today, food is a precious commodity. You have to grow it yourself or you have to barter for it or you have to go out and gather it or collect it or whatever. And many people around the world today live day to day with no guarantee of even one daily meal of the simplest staple food within their culture. Most people in the world, they live with no guarantee that they're going to have a bowl of rice that day or they're going to have a loaf of bread that day. 
They just live and hope that food shows up or hope they encounter some amount of food where they can eat or feed their families. Many hardworking people today all over the world have no clue where their next meal is coming from. So when Jesus tells us to pray for daily bread, he's revealing to us really the true purpose of prayer. Um, and the true purpose of prayer specifically in the life of one of his disciples. Far above me getting my needs met, prayer is meant to glorify God. That is really the purpose of prayer. Just like everything else in our life, it's meant to glorify God. It doesn't stop with Brian just getting what Brian wants or with Pansy getting what Pansy wants or even with us getting what we truly need. Its end result is to glorify God. Now, when I ask my father for food that will sustain my physical life day to day, if I really give myself to this prayer, and I don't just do like most young men or young women do in a huddle before they go out to some sporting event and they just kind of ramble through the Lord's Prayer, right? We've probably, most of us, been part of that or we've seen that. And, you know, everybody there knows the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my... No, that's Psalm 23. Never mind. You know, they, it, it doesn't matter. You can't tell because it's... Go win! And that's it. Right? Unfortunately, if you're like me... There's probably been more days than not that you woke up on the wrong side of the bed or you woke up with your mind racing a million miles an hour, all these things you had to do. Or maybe you had really good intentions. You got up early or stayed up late or you got up in the middle of the night or whatever. I mean, you were even really focused on prayer at the beginning. And you got down and you started praying. And where did your mind go? Everywhere but the Lord, right? Started going on the text message you hadn't returned or your kid that's out doing whatever or, or, or this financial need that you got to meet or this bill you forgot to pay or you wondered, did I put a stamp on that when I put it in the mail or whatever. It's going to all these different places and we don't stop praying. What do we do? We just keep rambling through. And we, start, we just kind of drift through some structure of prayer that might resemble the Lord's Prayer. What I'm saying is, is that when we ask our Father for food that will sustain our physical life, if we really give ourselves to prayer and don't just ramble through it with no thought, what it does is it forces us to come to God the only way that's really acceptable. And Jesus tells us what that is in Matthew 18, 3. He says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All throughout Scripture, all throughout the Gospels, we're told that we, to be acceptable to God, we have to become childlike. Not childish, but childlike. There's a major difference. We have a lot of childish people all over the world. Lost, saved, whatever, both. He says childlike. We have to become like children. What is Jesus talking about there? Well, he's saying that we must become aware, number one, of our need. And here in Matthew chapter 18, pointedly, it's our need for salvation. But we also have to become aware of our inability to provide that need for ourselves. We have to come to God as a child come to his father, knowing not only our need, not only our inability, but also totally trusting, Stephen, that our father is going to meet our need. We do that with salvation. And we should honor our Father this way concerning every part of our life, even our daily portion of food. I think if you're like me, and I'm just being real honest and transparent, if you're like me, a lot of times you just kind of take daily provision for granted. 
We live in America. Even if you are quote-unquote poor, you're not really poor. You're probably not really worried that you're going to starve to death. Even if you have been in a situation before where you weren't sure if you were going to eat that day, you probably just kind of had a sense that within two or three days you're going to get something in your mouth. Because we live in America. There's so much everywhere. And if you're like me, I just kind of skip over this a lot of times because I don't think about daily provision because it hasn't really been that big of a, of a, a fear. It's not that we don't understand we need it. It's just that we don't really grasp that there are people in the world that may not ever get it. But we should honor our Father and ask Him for those things. Jesus references this in chapter uh, 7 of Matthew, verses 9 and 11, when He says, talking about how we should come to our Father in need, also trusting that He's going to give us what we need. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, when we come to God for daily bread, it, it does something. It instills in us a sense of our not only dependence on God, but our continual dependence on not only God's daily provision, but also His future grace in general. It's one thing to pray that God would make us rich and provide so much for us that we need bigger storehouses to hold everything that He's given us. But to be honest, we can pray for that and it really not be out of a sincere need. It would be out of maybe a reluctance to really be dependent on God. There's a lot of people over the world, they pray, God, give me a whole lot. Give me so much. Give me an over and abundance. And it's not really because they intend to share it with the poor. It's not really because they intend to do anything that would be God-honoring with it. Really, secretly, down in the recesses of the human soul, there is a rebellion to be dependent on anybody, including God. You don't want to be dependent on anybody, and neither do I. How many of y'all hate owing somebody money? Yeah. How many of y'all hate stopping and asking for directions because you're lost and it proves that you're lost? Yeah, not only guys. Women in here too. Stereotypes shattered. We hate being dependent. But we are a group of creatures that are by nature and our essence dependent upon our Creator for everything, even the breath that we take in every day, whether it goes through one of those surgical masks or not. And it's that way with everything. When we pray this way, what we're really doing is we are getting ourselves more in tune with how continually dependent we are on God. Um, you know, it's one thing to trust Him when we can plainly see the answer to our problem. Anybody ever prayed for God to give you something, but you kind of already sort of had it figured out how you thought it was going to come to you anyway? God, please help me pay these bills. Well, you knew you were going to go to work and you knew that your check was going to come in and whatever date and all that kind of stuff. What you really meant was, God, help me pay these bills and nothing else really come up that's going to make me a little too short at the end of the month. Or, you know, God, help me pay these bills and still be able to live comfortably. God, don't let me reap the consequences of my gross overspending. That's kind of what you meant, but you knew money was coming. You already had it figured out. It's one thing for us to pray when we already kind of know what the answer to our problem is or when we feel like we have the solution already in our grasp. 
it's another thing to pray when we don't feel that way. In fact, the whole Christian life is one long exercise in trusting God for what we hope for, but we can't yet see. Isn't it? We hope for heaven. We have a living hope. We don't have a flimsy hope. We have a living hope. It's Christ Jesus. But I haven't seen heaven yet. And nobody else alive on the planet has either. Regardless of what book they write, they haven't either. So we, the whole Christian life is living with a deep, desperate longing and desperate need, a hope for something that we have not yet seen and we can't just lay our hands on it anytime we want to. So this is just the Christian life. This prayer forces us to be content with what God gives us day by day while also being content to trust Him for what we'll need in the future. And God calls us to subject ourselves to this and grow in this mindset because He loves us. What I'm saying is this. When God says pray for daily bread, He literally means don't pray for anything else. Pray for daily bread. Don't pray to be filthy, stinking rich so that you don't have to work anymore. Don't pray to be so, we'll say blessed, so that you can retire early and waste the rest of your existence doing stupid things that don't matter in eternity. Pray that God meets your needs today and that He'll continue to meet your needs every day. Or, I'll put it like Proverbs 30 says. We're told in Proverbs 30 that we should pray that way because this is how God calls us to help protect ourselves and guard our hearts. And Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. By, by demanding that we pray for daily bread and not mountains of bread so that I don't have to worry about the rest of the month. Not mountains of sustenance so that I don't have to worry about my next 50 years. Or I don't have to worry about my kids having enough to pay for a nice home when they first get started or, or whatever else. And I'm not saying giving people, I'm not saying leaving an inheritance to your children is a bad thing. No, it's a great thing. But what I'm saying is, is that our focus shouldn't be in prayer, God, give me so much that I don't have to depend on you. Our heart should be, God, give me just enough that I don't have to, that I will not be tempted to commit sins of commission out of my lap. But God, please don't give me one ounce more so that I'll be tempted by my wicked heart to commit sins of omission by forgetting you and forgetting how much I depend on you every day. We also need to realize that our request for daily bread is both physical and spiritual in nature. In, in, in John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the multitude with five loaves and two fish, the people followed after him. The multitude followed him where he went. And he says to them, in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. 
So here, Jesus is telling us that bread, or really sustenance, is not only a physical issue, but it's a spiritual issue. You know, perhaps the most familiar biblical reference that points to this fact is Jesus' reply to Satan as Satan was tempting him to turn the, the, the rocks or the stones into loaves of bread. If you remember in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was going through his temptation in the wilderness. If you remember, Jesus says to Satan, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you remember our study from Matthew chapter 4, you'll remember that Jesus is really quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's here that we get a real grasp of how the Word of God serves as our spiritual sustenance and what Jesus is really pointing us to here. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says to Israel, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Summarily, God forced Israel to wander 40 years in the wilderness, and he made them move around from place to place. He, you ever notice he didn't exile them for 40 years in the wilderness? He made them specifically wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And if you've ever seen one of those old maps like you used to see in VBS rooms or Sunday school rooms, they pretty much just made the same loop, didn't they? They just kept walking the same track. Well, why did God make them wander for 40 years? Why didn't he just say, okay, you didn't believe I'd put you in the promised land. I sent the 12 spies in. Ten of them said we're going to get crushed like grasshoppers. Two of them were right and said we can trust God. The rest of y'all didn't want to trust that I would do what I said I would do for you. So now you just go out in that wilderness and you put your face in the corner and you sit there until you're sorry for what you did. Why did he just do that? Why did he make them wander? Well, there's a reason he made them wander. And it has everything to do with why they were in the wilderness anymore in the first place. He forced them who had failed formerly to trust him to do what he had promised to now trust him for a miracle every day just so they could survive. He made them wonder because if you're wandering around, what can you not do? You can't set down roots and you can't plant and grow and harvest crops and provide for yourself. And there's no grocery stores, there's no gas stations, and there's no drive throughs Without God literally doing a miracle every single day, an entire nation of former doubters here would die of starvation within the first few months. He made them wonder so that those who days prior had said, we don't really believe God can do what he said he was going to do. Now they have to trust that he's going to do what he said he would do. And that miracle did come. That miracle came and God proved faithfully by sending manna from heaven that he was good for his word. See, the point, and I want you to really get this, the point was not the manna. Even us in the New Testament, we get all fired up and we read about manna. And Joseph, we, we really would like to taste some of that manna, right? Anything that is named, what is it? I kind of want to eat a little what is it. Hey, give me a bucket of what is it when you go through there. I would love that. I've never had fried what is it. 
I've had some gumbo that I wondered what was in it, but I didn't, you know, it was actually a name. Somebody knew, I just didn't know. This, no, this was so good, nobody even knew what to compare it to. Nobody said this tastes just like chicken. But the miracle was not the manna. The point wasn't the manna. The point was the trust. The point was that they had to learn to trust God. Our bread is that we daily rely on the faithfulness of God in Christ Jesus to do what He has said He will do. That is your spiritual bread. That is my spiritual bread. That is what Jesus symbolizes to us, the faithfulness of God. He is the radiance of the glory of the God who would love His enemies and make a way to save them from an eternity in hell that they have earned with every single thought and desire and breath. It is the faithfulness and steadfast love of God who would decide to love his enemies so much that he would adopt them in his heart and mind as his own children and he would propitiate for them with his perfect son whom he had delighted in for all of eternity, past, present, and future already. And he would give him not just as a sacrifice but to be ripped to shreds in the most tortuous death ever in the history of mankind. That's our daily bread. When Jesus says, eat on my flesh and drink on my blood, that's really kind of another way of saying daily trust that God is the God He says He is. He is just and He will punish your sins. But He's also merciful so He will punish your sins in me. And he's generous, so he provides a way of salvation through me. Trust him by believing on me. That's really what he's saying. You and I now walk through a world that is not our home. And it's geared to make us do one thing ultimately. The whole entire world is geared to make us doubt the faithfulness of God. Your flesh wants you to doubt the faithfulness of God in every single second, every single decision. The, the devil wants you to doubt the faithfulness of God in every single second and every single decision. And the world is entirely set up. Every cog of this machine of this world turns to make you and me doubt the faithfulness of God in every second and in every single decision. We may not see giants in the promised land, but this world tempts us to desire the things of the world that we can instantly see and taste and enjoy over the blessings that God has promised in the future. And if we buy into that, the effect will be the same. We won't trust the promises of God. The battle of our lives, the battle of your life, is to trust that what God has promised in His Word is better than anything this world can offer and that He will give it to us in the right time. That really is the battle of every single decision. When you and I are faced with the choice to sin or obey God, that is really the issue. Do I really believe that God is true? Do I really believe that what He promises me on the other side of this thing is true and that he's able to provide it and that he's faithful to provide it or is this all a lie or is it all just floating in the air nothing's guaranteed so I better take this little bit of enjoyment that I can see and I can grab I mean a bird in the hands better than two in the bush kind of idea so we jump on that sin and we jump on what the world is dangling in front of our face 
That's really the battle in every single decision you and I enter into every single day, all throughout the day, through the entirety of our life. We never outgrow it. We never overcome it. Not that we don't overcome sin. What I'm saying is we don't overcome the battle. That will always be a battle that we fight in every single decision. And the only way that we can continue to trust what God says is to feed on His Word daily. We have to chew on the bread of His promises. We have to meditate on His promises every day so that our faith stays strong. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word. If you don't do this, you will not live. If you don't do this, you will die. If you don't meditate on the Word of God, you won't have a root that will anchor you during the dry times of this life and you will shrivel up and you will blow away with every false promise this world throws at you. You will flee when no one pursues you. The world will terrify you about your finances or your children or your marriage or your future or whatever else. The world will entice you with things that seem better than even heaven because we don't really grasp what heaven is. It's eternity with the God that we were created by and for and by the way He tailor-made you in His image and after His likeness so that He's the only thing that truly fits you and completes you. He's the only thing that can really satisfy you and me. But if we don't chew on His Word and drink in His Word and are, and are filled with His Word every day, then eventually... The world will overcome our belief because our faith will be so shriveled and so emaciated, so small. Now, I said earlier that prayer is meant to glorify God. And one of the ways that it does this and one of the chief functions of prayer is that it sculpts us into the image of Christ. What I want us to see is this. Prayer is not a way of getting what you need primarily. Is that a fringe benefit? Sure. But prayer's main function is not to get you something, it's to change you into something. God is not really all that... I want to be careful how I say this. I don't know a better way to say it. God is not really interested, like we think about interested, in you getting something to eat today as much as he is you not burning in hell. Let me put it that way. God is not as interested of you and I living our best life now as he is us living a Christ-like life so that we live our perfect life for eternity. You see? And prayer, to take prayer and say, I'm praying for daily bread so that my stomach is full and that's where it ends, that is to greatly cheapen prayer. Prayer is the action of me placing my heart on the altar of God under His chisel, the chisel of His Word, and trusting Him to drop His hammer on it at whatever angle and at whatever velocity and however many times He needs to, to sculpt my heart more and more into the image of of the mind of Christ, and making it resemble the mind of Christ. You know, it's, it's an old saying. I know Brother Tony said it a lot of times. A lot of people said it a lot of times. If you have a big rock and you want to 
you know, make a statue that looks like an elephant, what do you do? You just take away everything that doesn't look like an elephant, right? When God found me, nothing looked like Jesus. Now, on the outside, everybody thought I looked like Jesus. I mean, I was like everybody. I was like all the rest of you. I was a pretender. Not that you're a pretender now. I meant earlier. If you are now, it's between you and the Lord. Talk to Kyle later. He didn't, you know, he'll be there for altar call. Those of you that are on live stream, you need to come meet Kyle. I'm just telling you. Without a doubt. But, but seriously, when, when Christ found me, on the inside, my heart was the exact opposite of his heart. I wanted what I wanted only because it was good for me. And if it hair-lipped everybody else, but it was good for me, I could reason out in my mind that that was okay if you gave me enough time and enough opportunity. We've all done that. We've all hurt people that we love because we were perfectly satisfied in being happy even at the expense of others. We would talk ourselves into it. Prayer is one of the main ways that God does what he ultimately endeavored to do when he saved you. And that's conform you, not to this world, but to his image. So that you would be an imitator of God as a dearly beloved child in Christ Jesus. He uses prayer to train us to love Him and conform our desires to His desires. We see that in verse 10 when we're told to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. When we tie the vine of our hearts through practice to the trellis of biblical prayer, then our souls grow toward God and we will be fruitful. As a part of loving God, we'll also begin to love others. I should pray for provision and for my own spiritual welfare for all the reasons that we've already discussed. What I'm about to say doesn't negate that at all. But when I pray, it shouldn't be just about me. And I'm going to be honest with you, in my prayer life, I often struggle with my prayer life. I don't mean I struggle to be disciplined to pray. I pray all the time. Ask my wife. Not now. Some people start looking at her now like she's going to go... I pray all the time and have for years and years and years and years and years. But you can ask the people that I'm the closest to and the people that I, in all candor, have related my struggles to. And one of the most difficult parts of my spiritual walk is that I've been so dissatisfied with prayer so often in my life. You know why? It's because I'm selfish. And that shows up more in prayer. If I'm a selfish person, that's going to show up more in prayer than I think just about anywhere else. You know why? Because there's nobody else to buffet you there. It's just you and the Lord, and we're great at ignoring God when we want to, aren't we? If I'm a selfish jerk with all of you, somebody will eventually get tired of it and make some snide comment off to the side, and I'll realize, oh, I've overstepped, right? Yeah. But in prayer... When I'm alone in my prayer closet and it's just me down on my knees, I can pray for hours about things that only pertain to me and not mention anybody else and get up feeling like I've done a, had a great prayer time, right? I shouldn't pray just about me and you shouldn't pray just about you. Now, here's a question for you. Practically, is there really any need 
for any individualistic obsession in our prayer life. We may feel like there is. You may be like me. You may have spent years praying really short-sighted prayers. But Jesus kind of seems to point to the idea that there's practically no reason to do that. Um, in Matthew 6, 31 and 32, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Don't be so concerned about those things. Now wait a minute. What shall we eat? Nobody here wants to starve to death. And if we have a true grasp of who God is and who we are, I think we would probably all agree that if God doesn't feed us, we're not going to be fed. But he says, don't, don't worry about those things. Don't concern yourself so much with that. What shall we drink? Man, I can live a shorter period of time without water than I can without food if I was in a survival situation, right? I should worry more about water. God, he says, don't worry about those things. What shall we wear? Ooh. Not only me, but all of you would be worried. Y'all know that's funny. If Brian had nothing to wear, people would be permanently scarred. They would gouge their own eyes out. It would be an ugly, horrific thing throughout town. I understand. He says in verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So God already knows what I need. He already knows what you need. In fact, Let's get off of saved people for a minute. Let's look at the lost world. There are people all over the world who not only don't pray for those things, they don't believe the God who provides them even exists. But God provides these things for them faithfully day in and day out, doesn't He? They're not worried about asking God for it. They don't kneel down and just pray for their needs before God. They don't pray about anything. Or if you want to take it one step further... In the same text, in the few verses before, Jesus makes a point that God provides for even the birds of the air and the animals that not only can't provide for themselves, they can't believe in anything. They don't have a soul. They can't believe and trust in that way. Definitely can't pray. So why should I pray for provision at all? I think it's a good question. Well, Jesus tells us what I think points us to the answer in the very next verse, in verse 33 of Matthew 6, he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Even my prayer of provision shouldn't be offered anxiously or out of a wanton lack of trust or out of a selfish desire, but out of love for God and a desire to see his interests upheld. My praying for daily bread, even physical bread, is not about me. It's about Him. Your praying that your children be healed when they're sick is not about you or your children. It should be primarily about Him. Us praying that our government does the job it should do is not about us or how comfortably we live. It should be about God and His glory. Everything we pray for should ultimately ascend to be about God and His glory. And listen, I'm not saying that in some kind of hard-hearted, heavy-handed, you know, you ought to do this or you're just a loser in the faith kind of way. I'm saying that because God tells us that because He loves us so much, He doesn't want us to miss out on the joy and the blessing of praying that way. He wants us to see even prayer, not in a 
what about right now kind of, kind of way. He wants us to see even prayer for daily provision through the eyes of eternity and through the scope of eternal reward and through the lens of an eternal enjoyment in Him. And if we don't do that, we just miss out. Even our prayers for provision should be out of love for God and again, a desire to see his interest upheld. I think that's why Jesus uses the verbiage he uses in the last half of the model prayer. I mentioned that earlier. I want to explain what I meant. The only, if you look through the model prayer or the Lord's prayer, the only singular references, the only times that Jesus is talking about one person in the entire prayer are the references that he uses for God, for, for our Father in heaven. If you read verses 9 and 10, and you want to just kind of roll through it with me, I'll highlight by my inflection that he says, Our Father in heaven, how would be your singular name, your kingdom come, your will be done. These are all singular references to God. Then we see a shift in verse 11 that continues through the rest of the prayer. Jesus doesn't tell me to say, give me my daily bread. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now, if you look at that and you put all that together, it's not that we shouldn't pray for personal things. I think we've covered that. We should. But if we're praying for God's will and His kingdom as we're commanded to in verse 10, our prayers will ascend to benefit others, and it will do that consistently and continually. This is how we love God and love others through prayer. Have you ever thought about that, that you love God and you love others through praying? This is how I can guard my prayer life from becoming a selfishly motivated, downward spiraling train wreck. And if I love God, I want Him to get every soul for whom Jesus died to save. Therefore, I will also pray for the lost. If I love Christ, I will love His body and I'll pray that they'll be fed all over the world. I want to please Him by being like Him, so I want to be compassionate to even the lost, like Jesus was when He fed many in the multitude who would never believe on Him. If I'm loving God in prayer, then I'll pray not just for my own holiness, but also for the holiness of the entire body of Christ. That means I need to pray just as much for you and your battle against flesh and against sin as I do for my own victory in my own battle. My prayer and your prayer, even our prayers for daily bread, must reach beyond ourselves. This is, this is how God trains us to love Him and others. And praying this way is the act of loving Him and loving others. You know, this is one of the best ways that we can love God and love others and be totally safe from losing our reward for doing so. 
You know, Jane, there's a lot of times that I can do things in front of people, and I may have really good intentions in the beginning. And all it takes is for a bunch of people to come up and start patting me on the back and talking about how good it was, and guess what I do? Start wanting the praise of man more than the praise that comes from only God. That's the human nature. That's the human condition. Why? Because I can feel that right then. I can taste that right then. It's right there. And my insecurities kind of lend me to it. My pain, my desires kind of lend me to that. So do yours. But in prayer, there's nobody there. It's just you and God. He's the only one that hears. He's the only one that knows. You can love God and love others in prayer in this way by sacrificing your time and your intellect and your energy and your, your emotions and everything else that you can in prayer obediently to God. And there's almost no way that you can lose your reward for it. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And this same Jesus commands to pray then like this. What I want us to grasp finally in just next few seconds is this. We need to start seeing prayer maybe differently than, we, than most of us have seen prayer before. My prayer to God may mean that my, my daily prayer may should look this way. I'm, I'm the one that it's the least about. It's more about Him and others than it is anybody else. I should count on you really to pray over I should really count on you to make me the subject of the prayer more than I make myself the subject of my own prayer, perhaps. Does that mean I shouldn't pray for my own holiness, things like that? No, those are things I should pray about. But 90% of my prayer shouldn't be just about me. 90% of your prayer shouldn't be just about you. Every part of our prayer should be surrendered to God for the interests of God. And I think if we do that, that means that most of our prayer is going to reveal that we are loving Him and loving others in prayer more than we're loving ourselves. And when we do that, that's not just the way that God teaches us how to love Him and love other people. That is one of the functions, but that is actually the action of us loving God and loving other people. That is obedience. That will be rewarded. I think a lot of us are going to get to heaven one day, and we're going to be astounded at how many coffers of gold and silver and precious jewels, either on our account or on the account of other saints of God, pass through the fires of God and make it. And they are left, they remain as a love gift to our Master, as a return on His investment in our lives. And every single piece in that coffer wasn't something that we did in front of anybody, it was something that we did on our knees in prayer. The older I get, and I've got a long way to go, but the older I get, the more I see that prayer is where we most often prove who we really are and give ourselves to be transformed into who we're really called to be. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I worship you and I just ask that um, I, I've preached this the way that you wanted me to. Father God, if any of my personality got in the way, Father, and short-circuited anything that you wanted to do, I apologize for that, Father God. I'm sorry. Um, I pray that you'll give everybody that heard this grace to just overlook me and, um, you know, just take the truth that, that you've presented to them tonight. Um, and I pray that, that it would change hearts. God, I pray that if there's people that are listening, send witnesses into their lives to, uh, to share the gospel with them and direct them to the cross of Christ. 
and to give them the grace to believe and to submit to him as Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray for all of us. I pray that um, for me, but also for everybody else, that, that our prayer lives would change, that we'd see prayer in a different way, that we'd see praying for daily bread in a different way, God. I pray that our prayers would, would not just be a way of getting our needs met, but we would really submit to what you're saying, Father, and trust you in that way, and that we'd put our hearts on the altar in prayer, and that we would love you and honor you in our prayer, and we'd be transformed by you through uh, the tool of prayer. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.